0: Welcome back, Change Cultivators, to this latest episode of the Change Cultivators podcast. I'm Patrick Fitzmaurice, your co-host, and I'm delighted once again to be here with my co-host, Roz and Boy. Ros, say good day to the people.
1: Hi to our listeners, and we are excited to be back uh, with uh, Carol Cruz here today.
0: Excellent. Every conversation we have with leaders on the Change Cultivators podcast gives each of us some new nuggets to take away as we all kind of help our clients or drive our businesses to deal with disruption and change, or as I think we may hear from today's guest, actually cause disruption and change and transformation. And so we are delighted to be here with Carol Cruz. Carol has a very, very illustrious past, both on the technology startup side, as well as big, fast-moving consumer goods companies. And uh, I've had a chance to know Carol on and off through the years. I know that she's known as the transformation CEO. CMO in many respects, but her career is really unique and it really touches on a lot of things that I know she has a passion around. So, Carol, welcome to the show and maybe just give our our listeners a little bit of a flavor for what your career headlines have been.
2: Sure. Um, and, you know, you'll see that I like change because I seem to change industries a lot and I'm big and small uh, companies I did start in corporate finance and realized after a couple of years that it wasn't creative enough for me, and my job would be the same for the rest of my life. I think as a commercial lender, uh, so I went back and got my MBA, and then I landed at Clorox, classic brand marketing, a great place to uh, start my marketing career. And um, but I was located in Oakland, California which is right near Silicon Valley and the lure of Silicon Valley pulled me away and I did three startups and I had all three startup experiences. The first company went out of business. Uh, The second one, we went public. Uh, The third one, we were bought by the Coca-Cola company and uh, we had started to do kind of the first digital for Coca-Cola brands. Uh, starting with Sprite and Sprite.com and the first online promotions. Uh, and that led to a move for me uh, and my family to Atlanta and um, where I led North America digital. We called it interactive marketing then. And um, it was the first websites, the first online advertising, the first mobile, the first social, right? The first of all those things. And I was basically an entrepreneur at a well-funded well startup. That's what it felt like. Um, and then uh, I got moved over to the global role as head of global digital at Coca-Cola, got to work with companies around the world um, doing a similar thing. And uh, that's really helping transform marketing at the Coca-Cola company to embrace digital, embrace that data-driven interactive marketing. Um, one fateful day, I got a phone call about uh, from a recruiter about being CMO at ESPN. And if you like sports, uh, what a place to be. And so uh, I transitioned back to holistic marketing, not just digital at ESPN uh, as a chief marketing officer. I did that for three years did a little startup after that, then went back and um, is the biggest change of my career, uh, went to healthcare, which is um, the antithesis of fast moving and change. It is the anti-change. Um, and that of all the transformations I had done certainly was uh, the hardest. And, um, and so I did that for four years. And now I'm focusing on boards uh, and investing and advising.
0: It's it's like such a fabulous arc. And I, I totally agree with your comment. You would have been pigeonholed in a finance career, right? To be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. but, but 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 somehow you've built this personal brand of yours as being known as you know the, the transformation executive, the executive, executive that gets things done. Um on the marketing side, either a digital marketing side or total marketing side. You know, is there a leadership philosophy that has served you well through all of that that says, you know, how you act, what your style is, that kind of thing that has helped you kind of move from industry to industry, but still kind of drive that whole transformation mentality as a leader?
2: Well, you know, I can't say that I consciously had a philosophy. I think the underpinning is that I'm very growth focused. Um, And I think to help companies grow, you have to be open to change. And so from a business standpoint, to me, being tasked with growing a company or growing a brand or... um, growing a different division of a company, you have to change. And you have to change with the times, you have to adopt new technology, and you have to change the culture to go along with it. And you know those, those uh, three startups I did in Silicon Valley, that's a whole different world. And I'll tell you, change there is so much easy, easier because you're an entrepreneur. People who are attracted to that are entrepreneurs and they're, they're used to that change, they embrace that change. That's what it takes. Otherwise, you kind of don't do little baby startups, right? Because you're so uncomfortable because the wet cement is everywhere. Um, it's, it's harder to drive change in a bigger company. And, and, and by change, for me, it's been transformation, right? It's not just a little change. It's actually a big transformation. And that just means I say I'm, a, I'm always the lowest paid salesperson, In companies, Uh, because really, I I say I'm 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 an internal salesperson, and that's what it you know that's a lot of what it takes to help transform a company. So um, you know I I think that's it. But my whole goal in doing this is about growth.
0: And and it's a great mantra. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and Carol, I'm I'm very intrigued. I mean, I've your background is, you know, as you say, consumer to then healthcare, and there's very, very different stakeholders, and you speak about startups and bigger companies. My background's been quite similar as well, where I've, you know, dealt with brands and leaders that are very eager to change, they're almost hungry, and they can't change fast enough. And then there's another group, you know, potentially healthcare, finance, that side of the world, where they want to change, but they're just not sure how. And as you say, in their mind, it's like, We can do this, but the pace and the infrastructure and the people and the processes and everything obviously takes a lot longer. So what did you do, you know, moving from like a consumer space to, to, you know, the more B2B or, or corporate side of things to take leaders on that journey? Because it's a very different mindset you're dealing with. The one is native to change, you know, which is in that consumer space they have to be. And the other one knows they've got to put on a new outfit, but they're not quite comfortable with, you know, those clothes yet. Um, what did what were some of the things that you um did with with leaders to get them to move into that more agile space, take them out of their comfort zone and you know, help them. I suppose it's not reacting to change, it's almost having to activate the whole machine behind them when. Potentially they don't really know how to do it.
2: No, that's a great point. When I went to Cambia Health Solutions, is the company I went to, which is a $10 billion non-for-profit, very different than a non-profit, non-for-profit healthcare company that includes Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance in the four Pacific Northwest states, plus a bunch of health tech startups. Um, but really, that that health insurance side was the, the main part of the company, and I never would have gone there. I really never would have gone into healthcare if they didn't have a mission, and it was an incredibly mission-driven company, and it was to transform healthcare to be better for people, right? And so the CEO was one of those very visionary CEOs who wanted to transform healthcare to be better for people, so that helped. They had been doing it for years and hadn't made a lot of progress, but, um, not, not for lack of vision, just the industry also was really holding them back. But as you said, they had a vision and this mission, but they weren't change agents and health insurance of all of them is about the worst because it's all about risk and risk avoidance. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, Yeah. So the good news is I had a CEO who was very supportive um, and I had an entree in, which was changing healthcare for people. And so that's where, as Patrick mentioned, human-centered design. I put all this into the realm of human-centered design and and human-centered design is a hundred percent focused on the design principles based on people. And so when you I really beefed up the research area and we did a lot more consumer-based research, qualitative, quantitative, in-home, you name it. And I made sure that everyone in the company was listening and watching and hearing people talk so that they could experience that human, the current experience and that frustration and that fear and that uncertainty And live that and start feeling that internally so that this was our guiding principle, right? So I captured people's emotional side. It was no longer a poster on a wall, right? We brought people into the company and we did live focus groups. And so everyone in all departments heard this need, right? And so that made it a little bit more tangible, (laughs) Uh, and so I found that that was one very helpful thing is you couldn't ignore it. It wasn't, again, a, 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 a something that was on your business card or posters on the wall. It was real. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing I did um, mm-hmm. continuously, always, and brought the folks who were more resistant I did a lot of focus groups in Portland, Oregon, which you should not do in your hometown. (laughs) But I did them because um, I brought people in who I could tell weren't on the bus, right? Um, And all of a sudden, they would be like, okay, now I get this. Now I get it. I feel it in my heart now, right? Trying to get empathy to take action.
0: And that's such a good point, you know, uh, we, we had Cassandra worthy on the podcast a while ago. Cassandra is, is kind of like you in some ways. She started her career as an engineer, right? She worked in PNG and product development, she then jumped to another side. and she realized that wasn't actually the thing that was going to fire her up and keep her going. Like that was going to be the box that she was trapped in and finance was yours. Um, and like you, bold enough to step out, in, and she actually is, the world's most renowned change enthusiast. And she actually speaks and she consults with companies on this notion of driving change enthusiasm. And she has models that she uses to kind of help people understand how do you hit the emotive side of bringing people through same. So I know you've studied deep into human-centered design, right, and some of those principles on there. What couple of things did you learn that might be really good nuggets for our audience to kind of say, you know, these principles of human-centered design really are helpful if you're trying to lead a team through change, if you're trying to understand how they're reacting and how they're going to go through? Because those are such rich things that oftentimes people who are leading change don't pause to think about the human element of that.
2: And I think even more so on the B2B side. So I will say that I was working both B2B and B2C. So we brought um, insurance brokers in. We had employer councils. Um, we talked to doctors, yeah, but really it was the, pe- the office managers, right, in a medical practice or hospital administrators. And so you can, I highly suggest you Google human-centered design and IDEO is one of the key, most well-known companies, IDEO. Um, I took a six-week online course at Stanford University in human-centered design. But the idea is a classic product development idea where traditionally you do all your insights and your research, and then you do your requirements, documents, and your specs, and you build. And then when you have an alpha, probably a beta version of your product, whatever it, kind of product it is, then you expose it to your target audience, and you know, you spent a lot of time and money. So the gravitational pull to keep going, and because especially because by then you might have like a launch date or
0: right. <laughs> you might
2: have promised it to a customer, right? It it might be the beginning of the budget cycle. There's a lot of gravitational pulls to say, well, we gotta go with it. And there's that awful minimum viable product acronym, which um minimum. It's just barely good enough. So human centered design, you do these prototypes and they are so basic. You don't, you can, you know, mock up a a mobile app and have people touch a piece of paper or the screen. You talk to them, you do little videos with your phone and you act it out. I mean, it is so basic that you put in front of uh, whoever your targets might be and you get their feedback and you do that all the time and you iterate your way and you course correct. Cause it's really easy to course correct in a service or a product early on. And, and that's the way you do it. And again, the more you can bring some of those key stakeholders along in the process, right? The more they feel an ownership in it as well.
0: Right. You build this kind of coalition of the willing, and I, I love Correct. your human. I love your human center design analogy. I don't know if you're familiar with the book by Jake Knapp um, called Sprint, based on what Google uses as kind of a quick unlock human problem solving. Um, notion to go into all of their incubator companies and quickly do prototyping it's a in the sprint book it's a five-day process where he just says look i'm going to fix your company we're going to get this done by wednesday we're prototyping by thursday we're ready to roll out by friday we're doing some kind of testing of this concept and it's very similar to what you're talking about
2: and i think the difference is people would say i can't do that in my Mm -hmm. company right I'm in finance and we're a regulated industry or, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people think you can't, but of course you can. And if you're a big company and it's a service company and you're thinking, oh, to make those modifications would be so hard. That is when the culture comes in, right. Um, of, of consistently improving your experience. Um, but you know, it, it's not for everyone. Cause The Six Sigma people of the world (laughs) can't stand
0: this.
2: (laughs) Who moved my cheese, man? Right?
0: (laughs) You were right. It's totally different philosophies on how you do this, right? One is operational and getting it really wired well. And the other is much more transformational and not being constrained by that. Very cool. Thank you for sharing.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it I think it starts with culture. You know, you put the the nail on the head there. And we had a a guy called Duncan Wardle, who was the ex-head of innovation at Disney. And one of the things we spoke to him about is you have your innovation department and your marketing department and they have these great ideas, you know, we're going to transform the company, we're going to move. And then it goes to procurement and procurement says, no, hang on, and then you go to legal and legal says, no, we can't do that, especially, as you will know, Carol, in healthcare and the financial services and all that sort of thing. So we've really um, enjoyed diving into it starts with the culture because the whole machine's got to work together. Innovation's got to be a company culture. It's not a departmental function, you know, legal, finance, procurement. Everyone's got to have that mantra of innovation and change within the business. Um, and, you know, you talking about now when you make changes it costs money you know every time you move in a different direction it's it's a lot of money and you're going to your board saying we're going to change this you know so the culture's got to be right the whole business has got to be looking in the right direction and I'm interested you talk about human-centric design but I'm interested as a, as a transformational CMO on your view of the role of data in this management this movement because um Obviously data helps you back up decision making you know when there's money on the table and you need to move fast but we're also seeing trends in the market where people are starting to question the data because they're saying hang on you now need an ai specialist to analyze so while you've got all this data who's the human on top of it analyzing it and making sense of it because algorithms and all that sort of thing i mean we're seeing it in many life uh, movements at the moment people are questioning data so I've got two questions for you. What do you think the role of data is today in this fast-moving space as a transformational CMO who's driving this direction at board level with very senior stakeholders? And secondly, do you think the data is going to cut it as we've been using it for the last few years, or do you see this um, trend of needing to add the human element over and above the data again because we've gone from no data to lots of data and then going, do we question or trust the data to now actually we need a bit of a blend between, you know, AI, human specialists on top of that data. It's a great question because
2: um, data is incredibly powerful. Um, but I'm a strong, strong believer in the magic that happens um, when you bring data together with, I'll call it the art, the art and the science, right? To me, there's the art and the science. It could be the data and the human element. Um, When I talk about human-centered design, that is the heart. Those are people, that's the emotional level. It's how people feel, how you improve their experience, how you solve their business problems. Those are the emotional sides, right? Um, the data side is how big is this total addressable market or how much, what will be the return on capital invested on this project, right? The, the data side might be the, 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 the true AI, right? The machine learning and to me, the machine learning side, everyone thinks that's um, everyone thinks of machine learning as hard data. By the way, if if you've worked with data scientists, who especially the folks in machine learning, their happiest day is when you give them a massive amount of unstructured data. And unstructured data is, for most companies, customer service calls. So again, is that data? I mean, yeah, they call it data. I call it conversations with people who use your product and the sentiment. So that is sentiment, right? That's how people feel. And they're bringing that in with the unstructured factual data of, did I buy more? Um, Did I use this product again? Am I recommending this service? So I... But you got to get people inside your company to understand that. And a lot of people don't understand data scientists and what they do. And so there's another opportunity for education
0: there. Mm-hmm. well and I know I know one of the things I think you did at ESPN if we can talk about that for a minute um, was this notion of under leveraging data assets yes. right and then uh, as you said either either quote unquote hard data assets or some of these software data assets and but you know that is clearly a data rich business we, we we've talked to somehow we've touched on sports a couple of times in our conversations we talked to mahul Kapadia, who's a Europe and Formula One racing and we talked about data in that world and we've talked to other people but ESPN was an interesting step for you because because it really was, you got this data, how do you action this data for business success? And maybe touch on that a little bit because I think there's some learnings and nuggets there that we could all take away.
2: Absolutely, well, one thing I think is important for folks to note is one of the reasons I think ESPN has been so successful is it is, in, it is a mission driven company to serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. To serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. It's the only um, company I've worked at where it, you're in the middle of a meeting and people are discussing. And then, of course, you can't see me, but they do the timeout, which is ironic. Right. And someone does that little timeout hand signal and they get, we get grounded. Timeout. How are we best serving sports fans? Okay, and I, early on, I had, we were talking about social and what content we would put up on our social um, feeds. And I, I, I remember this was like my first or second month on the job. And I was in a meeting with a CEO and we were talking about putting something up on Facebook or Instagram. And I said, but how would we monetize that? And I remember the CEO saying, uh, say, saying, Carol, shame on you. We're about <laughs> serving sports fans. We'll figure out how to make money on it later, but I remember that. Wow. And so um, it, it's interesting because then you think, well, they were providing amazing experiences, great production value, right, et cetera. They were on, sitting on a gold mine of data that they weren't really leveraging to drive some key parts of their business. Um, it wasn't to improve the production of college football, um, or college game day. It was thing in the digital area. So whether it was the app usage, the specific one is, um, fantasy sports. So if you're a fantasy football player or, you know, a fantasy baseball player, all gone to hell this year, of course, but (laughs) kind of hard to do that now, but, um, it's a great business for ESPN, because fantasy sports players consume a lot of sports, yeah. across all kinds of TV, digital, mobile, etc. And so by looking at the data of who are fantasy sports players, who might want to pay a subscription for the insider ESPN insider product, who, how do we encourage people, if you do one fantasy sport, to do another? Right. How do you see who was not the head of the fantasy team, but but might be and want to make sure that when they're leading a fantasy team, they choose ESPN's product versus a competitor's. And so we did a lot of um, data driven marketing, which seems kind of odd that that of course you're doing that. But the company has so successful based on a great product that they didn't hadn't really done that. One is because they didn't really have a strong need. But recognizing also that technically you can change those experiences and personalize them so much more uh, in a digital mobile world, which you really can't do on TV, right? And so if you're much more kind of thinking TV, you're not thinking about slicing um, those experiences as much. And the company, this again, that was easy to sell in because it, it was deliver it was serving those sports fans better. So that was just recognizing an untapped potential, but, but the mindset of serving sports fans was there for easy adoption.
1: Mm. And it's all about growth, you know, it's what direction you take very specific businesses in to grow them. As you say, some are sort of digital, others are using different platforms. And, you know, you you've worked with a lot of leaders that are looking to grow their businesses. And as, as you've touched on now, um, you know, there really is that need for new thinking and ideas, be it a traditional sector you know, that needs to think differently or, you know, a very cutting edge sector that you think they're at the cusp of something, but they've got to keep thinking of the next big thing, the next big thing all the time. What business disruption approaches have you used to help traditional businesses you have led think like that and to do that better, to keep going, okay, what is the next big disruption to bring the new ideas into to how we're going to take the business forward. Do you have any t- techniques or, or sort of guiding principles that you like to employ? Um, you know, enthusiasm goes a long way. I think Patrick
2: said that maybe early on, or, or maybe you did. Um, curiosity goes a long way. I think um, in this area, it's a little uh, addictive, um, this change, right? Right there's different types of people and some people love change um, and embrace it and look for it. Other people tolerate it and are okay with it and understand it's necessary. And then there's the ones who don't like change at all. Right. Um, And I, so what I have found is you have to understand how people feel about change. Everyone wants growth, right? I mean, if if you want your business to succeed, Everyone understands that growth is important, but you have to recognize that you've got these different groups. And so your approach has to be different with, with these three groups. Um, there the some people change because they thrive in chaos and they love it, but that's not really healthy for a company because sometimes you get changed for changes sake. Mm. Right. And you have to have the discipline to understand what change will make a difference in the company. Mm-hmm. And you do have to chart a path and it doesn't mean that you don't adjust it, but if you're whipsawing around, that's not going to drive growth either. And you have to kind of commit to a change path. Um, And then the people who really don't like change, those are the folks that I've always focused on the most um, because they are traditionally in really important departments, as you stated, finance, legal procurement um, data privacy is now another really important one Um, and of course because those people don't want change because that's the antithesis of being successful in those areas and so those are the folks that I have focused on to work ahead of the curve so if I know that there's going to be perhaps a data privacy question coming down the pike right I don't I don't wait till that happens and it's a fire drill. I start very early on. So while I like change, I am looking around the corner, mm. right? I am looking eight steps ahead to, to know and anticipate where some of those inflection points are or those blockages are.
1: Yeah, you sort of um, pre- preempting your audience's reaction, right? I think there's a, there's a saying, and I can't, I can't remember who it is, but people don't fear change; they fear what it's going to, how it's going to change them. So it's actually not the change; it's how is this disrupting my personal space and agenda, which I think is is very insightful with what you're saying. Is how do you address that before it becomes an issue?
2: Right. And so while I'll talk about human-centered design as being really iterative, that's one part of the process, but knowing ahead and literally knowing 10 or 15 steps ahead to get ahead of it. And so I think it's not only in getting people emotionally invested and bringing them on the journey. It is knowing ahead of time what has to happen, what those gotchas are, And so, some people I think are have a harder time with that that dichotomy of I have to think new things versus I plan twenty five steps ahead and know that that will be an issue. So that balance I think is important. And I I know some I I did three startups I and I now work with a venture fund and invest in startups. Entrepreneurs are a lot of idea people, and that's why. Uh, investors bring in what do they call it the old gray hair Mm -hmm. (laughs) someone with experience to couple and that partnership is important because you've got the idea person and the dream and the will and the drive to do something different and disruptive but you've got the experienced person to help understand what those key points are those gotchas ahead of time
0: It's really it's really smart. And I know you you talk as you work with different people about kind of style flexing, right? Like how do you kind of adapt your style? Uh, and you have a very distinct style and how you kind of go do things. Um, and how do you style flex to kind of cater to those different audiences that you're talking about? Because you're right, not everybody wants to do this the same way and not everybody has the same mindset. And so um, I, I think it's really interesting how you as a leader kind of adapt your style to make sure you're bringing these people along on the journey.
2: I am, and I've, I, I am, by my nature, um, uh, passionate, excited, right? I'm a marketer. That's part of it, But I, and I love change. So, it, you know, I love that, but I also, um, as a student of consumer behavior, know that not everyone is like me, uh, and I am a huge fan of things like um, Myers-Briggs, Herman Brain, Colors, you know, some of those um, diagnostic tools to help you understand the people on the team. And I have used those in every single company and every big project I've ever done because you get the insights into people and what motivates them and what they're fearful of and how they, their work style, even just introvert, extrovert. I've worked with lots of engineers. Um, computer scientists, data folks, and and who tend to be in a Myers-Briggs world an introvert, which doesn't necessarily mean you're introverted, but it's also kind of where you get your energy and how you process information, right? So all, everyone getting in a room and brainstorming on the fly of what might work works for some people, but it's really not good for other people because... Um, They want to think about things ahead of time and have some time to think about it and process and come up with them brilliant ideas. So you have to style flex in that way, right? You have to understand how people process things.
1: And we're seeing that more and more, particularly now with the changes happening in the world, you know, and having to manage remote teams and all that sort of thing where leaders have to Um, step back a little bit on the softer side of people management and you know Myers-Briggs and all these things are fantastic I'm also a huge fan and they've been around for a long time but I think you've actually as a leader got to take time to go okay I'm on my path I'm going I'm leading but let me take a percentage of time in the day to figure out the other people more you know I mean you can see this it's It's psychology in life. I think in relationships, there's a book called The Five Love Languages, you know, and they talk about don't follow what you want in a relationship, be it a relationship with your spouse, your child, or whatever it is, actually figure out what the other person's motivation is and what they need. And I think... We also talking to a lot of people on the podcast where they're saying now with this, you know, remote team management, dispersed teams, that softer side is so much more important. As a leader, to just take that time to figure out what's going on with another person's motivation, another person's drive, emotion, um, and all that sort of thing. So it's it's an interesting time for leaders, you know, on the on the psychology of of, of the people you're working with to get them all focused in, in, in a direction you need to go, but with different motivational triggers. Um, You brought up a really awesome point is as an extrovert, I find a
2: day on zoom exhausting. Mm. Okay. And I'm an extrovert. Yeah. So I think the other thing is you have to recognize what work style is appropriate. Um, Everything from, giving people information and giving them a couple days to think about it and perhaps provide their thoughts and ideas and feedback in written form where they're not trying to break in because some people won't shut up, (laughs) right? That point of view is you guys all talk, don't shut up. I don't know how to break in and you change topics all the time and it's not structured and you know, that this, those brainstorming sessions don't work for me. Mm. Right. And so doing that, um, and it's not only brainstorming, it's a meeting and recognizing that video isn't for everyone. Yeah. Right. And going old school, I'm a big fan of Google docs where you can share and look and comment on things on your own time on your own. Everyone has an equal voice, right? and and looking at it that way. And so I think that style flexing as you said is even more important now. But drop all the video, right? Yeah. Go old school in some ways because it works so much better for many people, including folks who are, you know, home with their kids in this impossible situation of working and having your kids schooling at home. And it doesn't matter because you can time shift these things. When you have a global team, you tend to do that much more often.
1: Yeah, and then right? I'll bring in the, the the ladies element. The guys don't always understand this. I'm like, you don't always want to get up and brush your hair and put makeup on at seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm I'm very familiar with that <laughs> as a person on the West Coast. Yeah, early exactly, in the morning. exactly. Yes. Especially with cross cross functional teams, and I think. um yeah, it's just interesting. I, I love what you're saying is that, you know, some people's energy levels are also different. You know, being on a Zoom call all day for somebody might be fine. You know, getting a document five minutes before a call and ad-libbing might be fine. But for some people, it's exhausting. They get demotivated. And we, we're in a very um, interesting time now where we're having to look at different it triggers, you know, with, with regards to managing people. Well, oh, and,
2: and um, we're not hearing from some key people when that happens yeah and that's then as you think five steps ahead or 10 steps ahead that's when you get this major wall because i'm gonna i'm sorry i'm gonna typecast a little bit because your procurement person didn't let you know because you didn't give them a a way to communicate what they needed to say at the early on yeah
0: it's really smart you know um I, I used to say, I was funny, I used to say to my consultants a lot and I, I was actually, I've done some work with interns in a couple of places and I've said, they said, what is the one thing I should learn? And I've actually said to interns, go to facilitation training. Like, cause I've put all my consultants through it and they're like, why? I said, cause you need to know how to work in a group, right? And you need to understand how to process a group and you need to identify different ways to draw people in different ways to drive conversations to different ends, different ways to deal with disruptors in a group conversation, right? And classic facilitation training is such a powerful thing for people to be able to do to function in groups better. And everything you're talking about, I'm flashing back to, you know, the facilitation trainings that I've helped run and the ones that I've taken are about that. It's understanding groups. It's understanding humans in dynamics of groups and how to make sure you're managing them for the best end.
2: That is a brilliant idea that going to, going to facilitation training because, uh, I have seen the most masterful focus group leaders, Um, unbelievable, able to pull out things from the person who you thought you would never hear from. And that is a brilliant idea. It's, it's almost like, Maybe you're, you know, you're a change agent, but you're really like an anticipation
0: agent. Oh, well said. Yeah, exactly.
2: Because part of change is anticipating whether it's technology trends or behavioral trends, but it's also anticipating what's ahead on your project. Um, because you know those people who are buoyant and have a zillion ideas, but nothing actually never ever sometimes seems to come to fruition, Right. And again, I think it is a little bit of that balance of heart and data. Uh, And I'm calling data, meaning the facts of what you need to know or have.
0: So I'm going to kind of shift this into somewhat of a quote-unquote lightning round, if you're open for that, okay? just want to kind of fire a few things and give you the floor to kind of just... Some things you think our listeners just takeaways, takeaways, takeaways. Um, one, and I'll probably do two, right? Because I think you have an interesting perspective. One, your CMO club work, right? So you're you're very much involved with CMOs, which tend, I assume, to be medium sized to larger companies, and they're dealing with those kinds of issues. On the other hand, you're dealing with startups, who are dealing with different issues along the way. So you kind of sit in this unique seat, right? Um, you know, is there some best practice for a transformational CEO at the bigger level? Let's talk about the CMO club stuff, like couple of best practices to be a better transformational CMO rather CMO and really kind of think through like, what do you hear? What do you see as you deal with that group? And then I'll give you the floor to kind of talk about maybe the other ones. And it'll be interesting if they're the same.
2: Um, Humility and listening. Hmm. A lot of C level folks or VP senior VP um, think they have all the ideas. Um, And I have always made sure that the most junior person on the team is in a meeting. I want to hear from them as much as I want to hear from anyone else. And I want, I don't think I have all the ideas water, you know, and I hire people way better and smarter than me. What right water rises, all boats float. So to me, humility and listening, Um, some of the best CMOs have that, have that focus.
0: Okay. Perfect. As you think about your startup people and you're working with those, if you're talking to someone in our audience who actually may be kind of in startup mode, what kind of good nuggets would you give them to say, look, as you go out there and you try to kind of go make, make growth happen for a startup firm in this environment where you are a disruptor or you're being disrupted, how do you coach them? Like what are the couple of things you have to say to them?
2: The number one thing I say all the time is it's not really what you do. It's what you don't do. Mm. And people are like, what? I'm like, because I've done three startups, right? I, um, and I work with startups. You have so many options at times, too many options. And you, the successful startups I've seen have a true north. Doesn't mean they don't pivot some, right? But they're not constantly distracted by these other opportunities, which which pull away um, scarce resources. And so to me, the successful startups know their true nor- north, what they're doing, and are able to ignore the noise and, and not do things. And sometimes it's hard to not do something that might bring you money, right? Oh, this customer, if only we we'll went in this direction, we, this, we could have this customer, that revenue. And then you peel off a group of engineers. Well, that was that customer, not what really most people need. So my biggest learning from my own experience and then working is what you don't do is as important or probably more important than what you do.
0: Yeah, and as I'm looking back at my kind of notepad that I use on these things to make all kinds of little squigglies and arrows connecting things, I'm connecting back to a few minutes ago when you a couple of times brought up mission-driven and being really clear on what you want to stand for. Your ESPN example is a great one of those, which does give you a way to do this. A word that I've been playing with lately is discernment. Like, what's the, what's the real thing I should be doing now? Not a strategic choice, but it's really like above that. It's like, what? How, how do I discern what really are the important activities for me to be doing in a world that has a tremendous amount of noise?
2: it's hard not to chase the money. You know, I think that gets you sometimes a short term little win and maybe you have to do it to survive because you're running out of cash, but really, you know, if you're, if you're looking at also the mid game or the long game, you know, you have to not do certain things
0: super thoughts super thoughts rod Roz any closing questions or a quick lightning round questions or a comment
1: I just keep thinking as you talking this word space comes up all the time and I think it is so important as we get into this you know, this bull run of life is always stepping out and creating space, space to think, space to go, you know, oh, you know, yeah, our four objectives as a business or three, four is too many, you know, are we sticking with the three things we're supposed to be doing? And if you just keep running every day, you forget that. And that's what you say, you start taking on things that are actually not making the money or or driving the objective. And it is, you know, I think as I also get on in my career, it's a conscious thing create space, space to think, to regroup, to make sure everyone's on the same page because you can get lost in the noise every day and then you're not productive. So, yeah, I just, I love uh, the nuggets you've given our listeners and it's it just, like I say I just keep coming back to that. So that's just such a wonderful takeout from this conversation today.
2: Well, I, and I think that's the advantage of, um, taking the people who don't seem to be as on board, um, And get them to be leaders on this project Mm. because they have a different perspective that's really important to remember. And by making them leaders and ownership of part of the project, um, they tend to bring a really interesting perspective as well as now I'm on the team and I'm, I kind of brought you in and they're on the team, but that perspective is always important, is always important. You know, you don't want all cheerleaders, some, 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 that, you know, that other guy on your shoulder, you've got the, the, come on, you can do this. That, that person who isn't quite on the board or that person who's always going to find that, you know, they're kind of annoying sometimes because, they're, they're kind of downers, the group will feel. Yeah. They have such an important voice, and it's so important Absolutely. to bring those people uh, and help them lead that project.
1: Yeah. No, very good advice.
0: So, so much goodness. I, I, there's much more on the head of my list that I wanted to talk about. However, you have been so gracious with your time. We won't dig into my entire punch list on this. As a, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your career and your headlines and your highlights. Um, We just love talking to super successful corporate executives who have been through so many different experiences. It gives us so many things to talk about and so many nuggets to kind of mine for our listeners. So thank you for that. Really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's early in Portland as we're recording this. So thank you for getting up early with us as well. Thank you. Thank you from my perspective, Roz, any closing comments and thanks for, uh, for our guest.
1: Just wonderful to chat to you, Carol. So nice to meet you and uh, I'm glad we've had this opportunity to share some of your insight with our listeners today. So great to have you on the show. Well,
2: and also great for me to get some of your insights um, because, you know, we're all, I hope we're always all learning and I love the points that you guys made as well. So it's a topic I'm passionate about.
1: Yeah. So, and I think I, think, I know we're closing, but I'm keeping going now. Karis uh, uh, and Patrick are going to give me a wrap over the knuckles, but I think one of the things that we just loving about our podcast is actually as much as, you know, we're getting guests on to educate our listeners. We learning so much every day, which is fantastic, you know, so it's just a, a, a men- mental gymnastics every day, which is wonderful.
0: Again, thank you so much. Good luck with all of the things you have your your enthusiastic change cultivator hands in and uh, they're lucky to have you. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure.